So my name is Emma Palmer. I'm an Associate Director uh, and a collaboratively trained lawyer in the Family Department at Whitehead Moncton. And I'm here today with Sarah Brissenden. Over to you, Sarah. Yes, I'm Sarah Brissenden. I'm a Senior Solicitor here at Whitehead Moncton and I'm also a collaboratively trained lawyer. Sarah and I want to talk today um, a little bit about the new divorce law, but perhaps more importantly, how that impacts upon negotiations around finances and children and other issues stemming from a separation. Sarah, you were going to start off, weren't you, by talking a little bit about the new divorce law? Yeah. Uh, on the 6th of April this year, the divorce laws finally changed, and it is an exciting time, as we hope that the changes can really benefit clients. Uh, prior to the law changing, unless couples had been separated for two years or more, they would need to blame the other for the breakdown of the marriage. Uh, this has now changed, and couples no longer need to assign any blame uh, to the other, and they can even apply to the court on a joint basis. Like I say, I think this will really benefit clients, as so often the first conversation is about divorce and then resolving the finances which arise from their divorce. We try our best to encourage couples to try and resolve matters as amicably as possible. And when starting off that process, assigning blame can really be starting off on the wrong foot. Uh, we do want to talk to you about the different ways in which we can resolve finances uh, more amicably. And Emma is going to start off the different processes with a bit of detail about collaborative law. Absolutely, Sarah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's really fair to say that as a divorce lawyer who's been practicing for over 20 years and somebody who has wanted the law to change for such a long time. Um, it's so exciting for, for us um, to, to have this change. And it really is um, an opportunity, we hope, for clients to come in and talk to us from the very start on a very amicable footing without having to assign blame. So there are lots of opportunities and lots of options, should I say, to resolve um, issues relating to the children and issues relating to finances. Um, one of my biggest passions is the collaborative law mm -hmm. um, approach and Sarah and I are both as we said earlier trained collaborative lawyers. Collaborative came in from the states a while back, um, I, I call it the touchy-feely tree-hugging version of family <laughs> law and the idea behind it is that everything is done in meetings and all issues are discussed in meetings or financial disclosure takes place in meetings. So there shouldn't be any shocks, there shouldn't be an email coming into your inbox with information or, or questions or details that you're not expecting. Um, it gives clients control over the process and the idea is that you appoint your collaboratively trained lawyer and your um, separated spouse or partner appoints their collaboratively trained lawyer and those lawyers then have an initial discussion to set a meeting date and agenda um, and then everybody attends that first meeting. Now, the agenda is, is, is usually drafted by the lawyers, but it, it's very much something that the clients themselves can input in. So, you know, for example, the lawyers may be focused on how we're going to deal with the divorce process and financial disclosure, but for the clients, what might be important is arrangements for the children. And so that first meeting, we can tailor the agenda to what the clients want and need. It, the whole aim of the collaborative process to, is to avoid court. Uh, and so one of the documents that we look at in the collaborative law process is something called the participation agreement. And ideally that is signed at the first meeting and it sets out the terms that the collaborative law process is going to be conducted upon. And fundamental to that is both parties agreeing that they will not go to court. 
Um, and if you do decide for one reason that the collaborative process is not going to work for you or is broken down and you do want to start a court process, then importantly, if the participation agreement has been signed, you cannot use that same lawyer to represent you in those court proceedings. Um, and that really, in my mind, binds people to the process because hopefully you like your lawyer, you want to work with them, you don't want to start again, and that can get you over um, issues that perhaps otherwise might have caused the process to break down. We also, uh, at the first meeting, um, encourage clients to prepare anchor statements, and those anchor statements are the important issues and aspects for them of why they want to enter into that process. Those statements can be prepared in writing or just done um, orally. And what is good about the statements is that further down the line, if we come to any difficulties in the discussions, then as collaboratively trained lawyers, we refer you back to those um, anchor statements in an attempt to try to get negotiations back on track. And that, again, can be a very effective technique. There are other options to the collaborative process. And in fact, where I practice in Canterbury, I do a lot of work using collaborative principles, but um, we call round table. So effectively, it's the same process. You sit around a table, you negotiate. Both clients will be there with their, their lawyers, but on the basis that you're not actually signing up to the participation agreement because some clients don't feel for one reason or another that they want to. Um, and in that case, then we would call that round table. So collaborative and round table, very much the same sort of principle. You get round a table, you roll your sleeves up and you try and deal with everything, but it's led by the clients. And I tend to find, I don't know about you, Sarah, that the clients who go through the collaborative law process with me um, come out of it thanking um, me and feeling as if the process has been something they had control mm, over. It absolutely. hasn't been dictated upon them. Yeah. Um, anyway, a bit of a whistle-stop tour of collaborative and roundtable, and Sarah's now going to take you through mediation. Yeah, that's right. Um, mediation is another process which we, uh, the whole aim is to, again, avoid court. Mediation uh, can be a great way for couples to come to an agreement, and again, uh, just like collaborative and roundtable, it's a face-to-face -face process. The a uh, couple come together in a room with one mediator. Of course, this process can be used uh, when they need to um, make arrangements for their children as well. And again, this kind of process allows the couple to stay in control. Um, they can arrange the meetings and are often in charge of um, what, what they discuss in the meetings. Uh, if mediation is being used to resolve the matrimonial finances, uh, then the Mediation uh, can go ahead as and when the parties agree and exchange documents which they agree to, uh, which they feel that they need to exchange. Uh, if the parties can come to a financial agreement within mediation, the mediator will then prepare a document called a Memorandum of Understanding. And it's within that document which records the agreement. The couple would then need to take that Memorandum of Understanding to a solicitor to draft up the consent order. And it's the consent order which you then send into the family court to be approved by a judge. Mediation can be very successful and the mediator is really there to help facilitate um, a conversation between the couple. They don't give legal advice, but they do give legal information. And of course, either party is free to go and see a solicitor if they feel that they need a bit of uh, extra legal advice. Um, like I said, mediation is a face-to-face -face, uh, process and some couples will of course find it difficult to get around a table and 
there are processes which we can help, uh, which you're going to discuss, Emma. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important to say that for some clients, it will not be appropriate to be around a table or face to face, particularly if you've got issues of controlling coercive or um, domestic abuse. But even for couples where there are no such issues, um, it, they are not ready to sit around a table together. They're not ready to do face to face discussions um, for whatever reason. It might be their different place in the grief stage, mm -hmm. for example. So just a little bit of a, a discussion then of, of options that are available in that situation. I, I think it's really important. We probably should say at the outset, there is nothing to stop couples from dealing with the divorce and the financial process themselves to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah. Um, the divorce process now is online. Um, it, it doesn't require a solicitor no. to, to represent you. In terms of the finances, some clients will come to us, won't they, Sarah, and say, I know what I've got, I know what I want to do with it. And just simply draft up the paperwork. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we're always um, perfectly happy to engage with that. Obviously, there are limitations from our perspective in the sense that if we haven't been involved in any financial disclosure, we can't give. We can't advise. Yeah, on, on the absolute. We can't advise on the sort on of the mechanics fairness. of how fair yeah. the agreement is. Yeah. Um, we can put the agreement into paperwork for you. Um, equally, we always have to remind clients who are doing it themselves that the district judge or um, deputy district judge approving the order, it isn't a rubber stamp exercise. Mm -hmm. It is um, something where they have to be confident and happy that it's fair in all the circumstances. So, um, it, you know, just because you've come to an agreement that you think is fair doesn't mean the court will. Um, and obviously, if that came out during um, the time that you were dealing with yourselves, we would probably be able to flag that to you that it, you know, something wasn't going to necessarily get through the court. Be approved, yeah. And in fact, both of us have, have had that experience, haven't we, with clients where, yes, that's, yeah. where exactly that's happened. But you know, doing it yourself is is an option. Um, up until a certain point, you you would without doubt need a, a lawyer to help you draft the consent order paperwork. The other option is to start um, by dealing with everything through solicitors. So you you instruct your solicitor, hopefully um, your separated partner um, or spouse instructs a solicitor, and the solicitors then will exchange correspondence, whether it be by email or they'll speak on the telephone, about how they're going to garner the information to be able to advise both clients and then enter into negotiations um, and, and a large part of the work we do will be dealt with by solicitor negotiations um, and ultimately um, the clients will never have face-to-face -face, um, mm. engagement in terms of the legal process. Ultimately what you're aiming for is an agreement whether it be an agreement in relation to your children or whether it be an agreement in relation to your finances that then is incorporated into a consent order. Um, that can be dealt with just entirely by solicitors corresponding um, and engaging. Um, and then I suppose we, we must talk to you about the, the options that we're not quite so keen on um, in terms of if you can't come to agreements, if you can't get around a table, if you can't instruct your solicitors and come to an agreement, then there are options um, for decisions to be made for you. And, and Sarah's going to talk to you a little bit about going through the court process. Yes, that's right. It's something that we always say is a com complete last resort, but unfortunately for, for some people, um, they really do need the courts. Uh, assistance. If one party um, decides to issue court proceedings, the court will issue a timetable and that will detail when financial disclosure must be exchanged and you would then have to prepare further documents before the first hearing and then the first hearing is listed and uh, both parties must attend. This is uh, of course completely different to the other process we've spoken about because the parties are in control um, for example, in collaboration, they, you, you can decide what financial documents you need and when to exchange them, whereas the court have, uh, will tell you what needs to be exchanged and when. 
both parties will have to attend the first hearing, uh, which is called the First Directions Appointment. And that hearing is all about establishing whether both parties have the financial disclosure they need to be able to negotiate. And then there's the second hearing, uh, which is the financial uh, dispute resolution appointment, and that is the negotiations hearing. And if the parties still don't come to an agreement then, the court will list a final hearing. It is um, rare to go all the way to a final hearing, uh, but unfortunately it does happen. You are expected to uh, try and come to a settlement throughout the court process. And unfortunately, uh, because the courts are so busy at the moment, you're probably looking around 18 months to get to a final hearing. So if, unlike in the other processes where you can decide when the meetings are going to take place, you really have no control over how long the court process will take because it really does depend on when the hearings are listed. And even when you have a hearing listed, I've, I've had it happen to uh, clients of mine, two days before the hearing, uh, when everyone's prepared, the court unfortunately have to say, actually something urgent's come in and relist your hearing, which can be really, really disappointing. Well, the other really big issue when parties go to court that we really need to make them aware of and which is one of the reasons why courts best avoided, are the costs. The costs can be... Astronomical. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, there's really no limit. And the problem um, with going to court is it really depends on how the other party behaves. behaves. Absolutely, yeah. um, if they, they just don't comply with court orders, you have to make extra applications. The costs can just be, uh, like you say, um, astronomical, unfortunately. So court is always best avoided because the only people who really make money would be the lawyers. Uh, well, that's very true. But equally, um, the other problem with, with the cost side of it is that even if you get cost orders, well, even if you apply for cost orders, it's down to the judge whether to A, make the cost mm -hmm. order. Mm -hmm. And secondly, um, it may be that the person who you know, you're making get the cost order against hasn't got, hasn't the, funds got the money to, to pay. pay it. So yeah. um, the court process really is, I think, in our minds, an absolute last resort. Mm -hmm. And the COVID situation has not helped at all in terms no. of the backlog. It was backlogged anyway. The backlogs are now extraordinary. Mm. Um, and as Sarah says, cases often get pulled at the last minute, whether it be for um, judge, you know, judge not being judge available. available. Yeah, yeah. And and you might then not get another date for three, four, five, six months. Yeah. So you know there is no control, um, and and therefore it's it, it is very stressful. But there is another alternative to court, which I'm just going to talk about briefly before we conclude. And that is arbitration. And arbitration is the private version of going to court. So effectively, rather than relying upon the, the court system, making an application through the court, um, you pay to have an arbitrator make a decision. So you pay for the judge's time. Arbitration is quite flexible in the sense you can do it either as a paper exercise, so you can make written submissions and an arbitrator will make a written decision. Or you can follow the traditional court application process and have all the, the, the hearings that the court would have, or you can pick a mix. So you could go in and have an initial first directions appointment and then go straight to final hearing, or a financial dispute resolution appointment and go straight to final hearing. Uh, so it really is a very tailored approach. The day of your hearing, if you're going to go through oral submissions, the judge is, is yours all day long. You're, you're paying for his or her time. Um, if you're going through the traditional 
court system, when you get to court on your day, you might find that urgent applications have gone in before you. You don't get in when you're expected mm. to or, you know, the judge has to break for one reason or another. Whereas with arbitration, you are paying for the judge's time. The judge will have read your papers in depth because they've had the time allocated to them to do so. But it's still important to bear in mind that arbitration is um, it is a judicial decision at the end of the day. You, you don't have control over the final decision reached. That is imposed upon you. So although it, it's perhaps a more tailored approach to having a decision made, certainly in the current climate, if you can afford to pay for the, the time of the arbitrator as, as well um, as the time of the law is preparing, um, it is still a decision that's imposed upon you. Mm. Um, and the rights of appeal from arbitration are a little bit more limited than, than from a traditional court process. So arbitration is a really good option. I personally think, um, having done a couple of arbitrations, that the written submissions it is actually very good. So, for example, mm. I've had cases where clients have been able to resolve a lot of the issues in negotiations, but there's been a discrete point that they can't get over um, and therefore arbitration as a written exercise on that one point has then enabled them to be able to come to a decision overall. Um, so it, it's, it is a more flexible option, but it is still an adjudicated decision at the mm. end of the day. So hopefully that's been helpful to, um, to really look at the different ways there are to come to an agreement, both for the finances and in relation to your children. Um, I suppose... Um, you might ask what would be our preferred option if we were advising clients. I think from my perspective, always the collaborative law approach, uh, I find that work so rewarding and I feel that the clients definitively get the um, best experience from what is after all a difficult process because they're in control Absolutely. from the very outset um, and they can set the pace. If you've got people who are at different stages of the grief cycle, that can be managed more effectively um, when you're sat around a table discussing um, and and coming to agreement. So from my perspective, that, that is, is what I would recommend where clients are able to and willing to do it. Mm, oh yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's such, it's just a different way of working, isn't it? Mm. Um, especially uh, the, such an important aspect is working with someone who, um, another, you know, another solicitor, which you really get on with. It's, it's a completely different way of working for us. And like you say, a completely different experience for the clients as well. And if you asked um, any collaboratively trained lawyer that does collaborative work regularly, they would without doubt say it's their preferred way of working. Mm. We just need to get the message out to people that it's an available option and that actually, whilst it might appear more expensive because obviously you've got lawyers in the room in meetings, mm. overall, when you factor in all the other aspects, the time that can be saved because collaborative can be quite quick if people want it, it to can be, be yeah. then the overall cost in our experience is not that much greater. Um, or, or, or often can be cheaper than other options and certainly yeah. considerably cheaper than court. Oh, certainly. So that concludes our podcast for today, doesn't it, Sarah? Yeah, thanks, Emma. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you.